It's the 28th of May in the year of our salvation, 2007. In the United States, it's Memorial Day, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest Pope St. Leo the Great, who died in 604. Uh, We're going to hear some of his Moralia in Job, which is in the Office of Readings today. Also, I'll talk about a brand new book that came out, very interesting new book, came out in Rome, and I'll talk about what it says on sacred music. I have all sorts of other digressions too, so let's get right into it. It's going to be a long one today. doctor of the church was born in Rome around 540. Uh, he was of a patrician family related to the gens Anicii, so it had very ancient roots. And he had in his family great churchmen of the past, including uh, Pope Felix III and Pope Agapitus. Sometimes that's pronounced Agapitus. Gregory was uh, eventually made uh, prefect of Rome. That meant he had whole charge of the whole city uh, around 572. And uh, in that role, he gained great um, administrative skills, which would be very useful for him later uh, in you know ecclesiastical reform and running the church. Gregory had a profound conversion to the monastic life uh, around 574, 575, right in there. And he made his family home uh, into a monastery. It was called the Monastery of St. Andrew on the Celian Hill. Sometimes that's pronounced Chalian Hill. And it was located in the Clevus Scauri. Uh, if you ever come to Rome and you go up to visit the church of uh, Saints John and Paul up on the Celian Hill, or the Chalian Hill, uh, you'll find that there's a passageway, a little road that connects the Palatine Hill to the Chalian or Celian uh, through what is called the Clevus Scauri in there, a bunch of little arches there. If you're not quite sure where it is, but you, you know, are up there in that area and you walk through a series of like seven arches, that's the Clevus Scauri. And it was right along there that the, fam- the family home of Gregory was to be found. As a matter of fact, it's just on the other side of that right now where you find the great church of St. Gregory the Great. So that whole area has always been associated with St. Gregory. Now, uh, once uh, Gregory, of course, was uh, you know, getting involved in, in the city and getting involved in the church uh, more closely, Pope Pelagius II ordained Gregory a deacon right about in 579. 
and he sent him as his emissary to Constantinople. Now remember, by this time, Gregory is already pretty well known. He's been you know, prefect of the city, and uh, he's been living the mon monastic life. He also, as a matter of fact, up in his house, he established a, a school, uh, a library and a school for scripture. Uh, this Pope Agapitus, or Agapitus, had already established a library up there at the family home, and so he takes this and turns it into a, a center for study. And Pelagius picks up on this guy, makes him a deacon, and sends him off to Constantinople in very difficult times. And Gregory took with him uh, some of his monks from his community, and they created a monastic community in Constantinople, in present-day Istanbul. And uh, they had conferences there uh, in his monastic community in Constantinople, and other lots of visitors, like visiting prelates, actually men who were exiled, uh, came like, uh, St. Uh, Leonard, I believe, is, was there. Uh, they, there were many people who were in exile because of the persecution of Arians and Goths in Spain. So they wound up in Constantinople and they participated in these conferences and sessions that Gregory would have in his monastic community. And the series of talks and discussions that they had eventually turned into the work we're going to hear the uh, Moralia in Job, or sometimes it's called the Expositio in Job. And uh, this is, of course, Gregory's greatest work of scriptural exegesis. And it took him a long time to do it because, like I said, it started as conversations there in Constantinople. As a matter of fact, Gregory himself talks about it. He says they had conversations, but then he would continue it later on, dictando, uh, not just by conversing, but also by dictating. And then he went on and revised the whole collection. Uh, he describes how he did this. He said, multa augens, right, expanding many, many things. Pauca subtrahens, you know, taking away only very few things. Non nulla derelinquens, and just leaving a whole bunch of stuff out. And so uh, what you hear in the Expositio in Job, or the Moralia uh, in Job, is an integrated work that Gregory himself polished, but within it you hear two different styles, two different genres, one of them conversational and the other one more dictated. Uh, though the, you know, because uh, he polished it, the distinctions, you know, kind of level out a little bit. Nevertheless, they do remain and you can detect them. As a matter of fact, the last part of the, the whole work remained in the more conversational style and he left it that way specifically at the request of his brother monks in his monastery. And so the work consists of 35 books on the 42 chapters of Job, and he continued to work on it uh, as, uh, as a scriptural exegete long after he became Bishop of Rome. He kept working on it. And uh, what you can do uh, while you're listening to this is pay attention to how Gregory uh, uses uh, a, his style of reading, how he takes the, 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 the scripture verse that he's interested in and then comments on it and then comes back to it here and there and then comments on it some more and then brings in other scripture which he uses as a lens to interpret the verse he's interested in. This is a common thing among the fathers to use scripture to interpret scripture because all scripture is being spoken by Christ as Augustine describes all 
all scripture is Christ speaking, and so you can use scripture to interpret scripture. So let's turn right now to this selection. It's from the third book of the Expositio, or the Moralia of Job. Emoralium libri sancti Gregorii mani pape in Job. Paulus cum in se ipso divitia sapientia interne in spiceret seque ipsum exterius esse corruptibile corpus videret hait habemus tesaurum istum in vasis fictidibus. Ecce in beato Job vas fictide sisuras ulcerum exterius sensit sed hic tesaurus interius integer mansit. Foras enim per vulnera crepuit, sed indificienter interius nascens tesaurus sapientiae per verba sancte eruditionis emanavit. If we receive good from the hand of God, why should we not also receive evil? Paul saw the riches of wisdom within himself, though he himself was outwardly a corruptible body, which is why he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In Job, then, the earthenware vessel felt his gaping sores externally, while this interior treasure remained unchanged. Outwardly, he had gaping wounds, but that did not stop the treasure of wisdom within him from welling up and uttering these holy and instructive words, if we have received good at the hand of the Lord, shall we not receive evil? By the good, he means the good things given by God, both temporal and eternal. By evil, he means the blows he is suffering from in the present. Of those evils, the Lord says, through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord unrivaled. I form the light and create the dark. I make good fortune and create calamity. It is I, the Lord, who do all this. I form the light and create the dark. Because when the darkness of pain is created by blows from without, the light of the mind is kindled by instruction within. I make good fortune and create calamity. Because when we wrongly covet things which it was right for God to create, they are turned into scourges, and we see them as evil. We have been alienated from God by sin, and it is fitting that we should be brought back to peace with him by the scourge. As every being which was created good turns to pain for us, the mind of the chastened man may, in its humbled state, be made new in peace with the Creator. We should especially notice the skillful turn of reflection he uses when he gathers himself up to meet the persuading of his wife when he says, If we have received good at the hand of the Lord, shall we not receive evil? It is a great consolation to us if, when we suffer afflictions, 
we recall to remembrance our Maker's gifts to us. Painful things will not depress us if we quickly remember also the gifts that we have been given. As Scripture says, In the day of prosperity do not forget affliction, and in the day of affliction do not forget prosperity. Whoever, in the moment of receiving God's gifts, but forgets to fear possible affliction, will be brought low by his presumption. Equally, whoever, in the moment of suffering, fails to take comfort from the gifts which it has been his lot to receive, is thrown down from the steadfastness of his mind and despairs. The two must be united, so that each may always have the other's support, so that both remembrance of the gift may moderate the pain of the blow, and fear of the blow may moderate exuberance at receiving the gift. Thus the holy man, to soothe the depression of his mind amidst his wounds, weighs the sweetness of the gifts against the pains of affliction, saying, If we have received good at the hand of the Lord, shall we not receive evil? Quatinus et flagelli penam memoria tempret doni, et doni letitiam mordeat suspicio ac formido flagelli. Sanctus igitur vir, ut oppressam mentem intervulnera mulceat, in flagellorum doloribus blandimenta donorum pensat dicens, si bona accepimus de manu domini, mala quare non sustineamus. That was a selection from Book 3 of Gregory the Great's Moralia in Job, or the Expositio in Job. And uh, we have this, of course, because uh, in the Office of Readings right now, uh, our first selection in the Office is from the Book of Job. And at this particular moment uh, in the Office, we have... You know, Job, he's sitting there afflicted with sores all over his body and people come to talk to him and it's like they wear, they're wearing down his will. They're wearing him down. Among them his wife. And uh, they bring to him uh, the question, you know, the great question is actually put to him. Do these, do these evils have any, any purpose? Do they come from anything? Are they worth anything? You know, why not just roll over and die? And uh, Job's uh, response is, as uh, you heard a Gregory describe it. And it's very useful for us to think about this, uh, this presentation of the interplay between good and evil in our lives, remembering that before the creation of the universe, God knew every single one of us. He knew us and knew who we would be and who we are, far better than we will ever know ourselves. 
And according to his great plan for the entire universe, he calls us into existence at a particular point along that plan. In other words, he has a purpose for every single one of us. He knows what challenges we'll have. He knows what we need better than we know ourselves. And so the good we receive is always from God. But the evil, maybe you know, put that between little mental brackets, the evil we receive is also from him, or at least it's always permitted by him. He uses uh, the difficult, you know, even calamitous situations of our lives to strengthen us and to test us and to correct us. We are always asked, even within the midst of our great troubles or the evils that we might experience in life, always to remember the goodness that we have from him. First of all, our existence, but then also the reason we were made we were made in order to be with him, to serve him in this world, but to be happy with him in the next. And the fact that we will have happiness in heaven doesn't necessarily guarantee that we will have happiness in the temporal sense or in the secular sense here in this life. There's no guarantee that everything will be perfect and, uh, and comfortable here. We will have evils. Sometimes the evils are permitted, not because we're doing anything wrong, but to strengthen us, and also to uh, ask us to make uh, an additional confirmation of our love of God. This is always going to be for our good. And we should, even though it's very difficult and is very painful when we're suffering, we must get into uh, the, the habit, even in our small sufferings, in the little things that we have to endure, to practice looking through them at God in order so that when the big comes the big ones come if they do we are in the habit of looking through the greater sufferings also towards god in the second vatican council there's a very important document called gaudium et spes and it was a as a matter of fact something that the young bishop karl wojtyla from poland had a hand in in writing or at least contributing theological concepts to and one of the most famous paragraphs of that entire document is, doc, is paragraph 22 in which uh, Holy Church says that Christ, the incarnate word, Christ uh, came into this world in order to reveal man more fully to himself. In other words, by looking at Christ, we understand who we are more than we could in any other way. We are revealed more fully to ourselves. However, it's precisely by looking at him that we see also pain and suffering. We see the suffering Lord, the crucified Lord, not just the glorious and risen Lord. And so therefore, his suffering uh, shows us ourselves more fully revealed. We have to learn both from the suffering, but also from the promise of glory. Hey there, mister, can you tell me what happened to the seeds I've sown? Can you give me a reason, sir, as to why they've never grown? They just blown around from town to town till they're back out on these fields. Yeah, well, they fell from my hand back into the dirt of this island. 
The selection we heard uh, brings another thing to my mind. You know, when Gregory, uh, St. Gregory the Great, uh, was uh, writing and uh, you know conversing with his monks and then writing it down and rearranging it and so forth, he was creating, he was creating a book that was not to be merely a commentary on scripture and then add some moral lessons from them. He was uh, trying to make scripture more accessible to people. He was really the very first pope who was also a scripture scholar or a scriptural exegete. Now, of course, you know, all other popes, even you know, Leo the Great, other great popes had uh, studied scriptures. Of course they had. But this he was doing, Gregory was doing in a very systematic way. Also, in other podcasts, I've talked about uh, the tension that is experienced in great men like Augustine, for example, between the contemplative life and the active life. Uh, the ability to spend time free from uh, the pressing cares of life so that you can meditate and ponder the deeper questions. And on the other hand, you know, getting out there and serving and getting, you know, the dirt under the nails and so forth and in, in such a way, in such a way that you barely have time to think for yourself. Well, in a way, this book here, the Moralia in Job, reminds us of this tension uh, because, of course, Job himself is forced to raise his eyes beyond this world and focus on the life to come and, and figure out how these two things you know, fit together, his experiences in life now, and then what we are promised in, in heaven. But also in Gregory's own life, he's a man who was kind of ripped from the monastic life and then set off into another place where he might not have had necessarily a strong desire to go, move from from Rome to Constantinople. And there was a lot of tension, by the way, in Constant with between, you know, who was going to be the prime, you know, the prime city of Christendom in those days. Was it going to be Rome or Constantinople? So, you know, Gregory goes as the Pope's emissary into that place, which is trying to create for itself, you know, the, the pre uh, preeminence. And he a very foreign place and uh, but he in his own life is taken out of the monastic setting of you know scripture study and calm and prayer and then he moves into these great cares of life which he had experienced before when he was prefect of the city basically had to run everything in a time when all social services in Rome where everything was breaking down the empire had fallen apart and things were very difficult everything depended on on Gregory the Great and so there's this tension. There's always a tension. There's a tension in all of our lives too, isn't there? You know, we would be trying finding, you know, free time and space so we can contemplate and meditate on things, but also fulfilling the duties that we have. I'm also reminded in listening to this of the recent book of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth on Jesus of Nazareth. Here, the Pope, uh, not in his capacity as Pope. But uh, Pope Benedict is working as an exegete. He's entered into a wonderful exercise, uh, even maybe a medicinal cure, if we can call it that, for a kind of disturbing or distorting exegetical style that's, you know, was maybe a little bit too much in vogue in an unrestrained way for a long time, the so-called historical critical method. Uh, but His Holiness is also seeking in his busy life 
to unite himself ever closer to the to the Lord. He's trying to look at the face of Christ and understand him as God and as man. He's, uh, as a matter of fact, very frequently referring in his talks, if you've been you know, paying attention to them, to looking at the face of Christ. And we also heard that uh, very beautifully described in uh, John Paul II's letter about the rosary during the year of the rosary a few years back, when he said that the rosary is the kind of prayer which looks at, helps us to gaze on Christ's face. And Mary teaches us how to do this. So there are connections, even now. Even now there's something in the human condition and uh, our life as Christians which seeks to cope with this tension between the contemplative and the active and what our promises are uh, for heaven and what our actual situation is in life, but always finding the balance in the one who was born in the fullness of time as God and man, and that's the man God, Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator between us and God. This week in Rome, there came out a brand new old book, and I mean a brand new old book because it's a reprint of a work called the Compendio di Liturgia Pratica. It's a compendium of practical liturgy, and it's uh, by Ludovico Trimelloni, and it was published by Marietti, and uh, the editor, uh, a gentleman by the name of Sifi, is, uh, you know, put his own comments into it, but what it is, is a reprint of a liturgical manual for the 1962 Roman liturgy, and it tells you how to do absolutely everything as it was done in 1962. So in a lot of ways, it parallels what happened in the English language with the reprint of the work uh, by, you know, which we call Fortescue and O'Connell, which tells you, you know, how to say Mass, what to do with basically everything. And this book is fabulously picky. And, uh, of course, you know, the pickiness, you know, just, we could maybe, maybe focus on this, because sometimes uh, people accuse the old Mass and the old liturgy of being just too picky. You know, why did, why would Jesus, you know, be interested in how many things did the cross you make, or how big do you make them? Well, the thing is, is that it's not pickiness for pickiness' sake. The, the issue of rubrics uh, is very important for us to understand, because rubrics give us a structure that frees us we are freed up by detailed 
rubrics so that we can participate in our uh, prayer with greater interior freedom. Uh, rubrics set us free, as it were. Rubrics aren't just things that people made up uh, because they were fussy or fuss budgets. They, they create a structure so that we cannot impose ourselves on the right and therefore violate the rights of others to have what Holy Church has to give. So rubrics can also set us at ease that what we are doing, we are doing correctly. Uh, well, of course, you know, unless you're uh, the type of person who suffers from being overly scrupulous or suffering from scrupulosity, in which case, uh, in the case of that terrible affliction, very little can help you be at ease. Uh, some people really do suffer from this. And I have to say that some people who suffer from scrupulosity have really uh, latched on to uh, the old kind of, the old rubrics and the older right with great intensity and ferocity and therefore they're unhappy basically with just about everything that happens then again you know the traditional thing tends to attract the type of person who's happy only when he's unhappy they'll always they'll find fault they find fault so easily we need to you know kind of meditate against that it's like job earlier right we can't just focus on everything that's bad we also have to see beyond them to see also what's good and understand that both things play a role uh, but i'm digressing here a little too much uh, we have to remember that the rubrics they not only you know set us uh, free so we can pray better uh, they keep but they also you know help us be at ease so we know what we're doing they defend all of our rights yes but they also keep us in unity so that what I'm doing I know I'm in unity with someone else uh, maybe on the other side of the world doing exactly the same thing so you know we all have heard the stories about people could go from one point of the world to the other and they and, you know mass was always the same they could participate the same well now you can barely go from one parish to another and in some cases recognize that it's the same mass now that hope really happily is starting to fade away i think people things are leveling out a little bit especially with some of the wonderful new priests that are coming up they're trying to be you know very careful and observant and reverent but let's all remember that you know rubrics aren't just for the sake of pickiness although this book is really really picky and uh so it provides some kind of fun reading uh just for example i turn to the section on music since i'm very interested in music and music uh, played a fundamental role in my coming into the church so when we turn to this, we find all sorts of great stuff. First of all, of course, we all know that it says that Gregorian chant is the most important thing. It's both normal, completely normal for have Gregorian chant, but it's also the normative way, really. You know, there are also other kinds of music, but Gregorian chant is really where it's at. And it's very interesting to read this book in 1962, how it proposes that people should really know Gregorian chant so they are actively participating and not just mute at Mass. And they cite a, a, a document called Divini Cultus from 1928, a document of Pius XI. Well, Benedict Sixteenth in his new document, Sacramentum Caritatis talked about how people should know Gregorian chant and how they should be taught these things. Well, you know, it's just like the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? We're still fighting for these same things, whether or not people can sing at Mass, and if they have to sing at Mass, if they have to sing everything at Mass, if it's possible to listen at Mass, all these things really need to be approached with a certain measure of common sense. But then this book gets into you know, particulars about soloists and, you know, very 
I'm reasonably recommending the soloists shouldn't uh, stick out too much when everybody's trying to sing together, you know, in one voice. And uh, then it gets interesting about whether or not choirs can be mixed, if there can be men and women in choirs. Well, there's a section all in this book, uh, this brand new book, about women and their singing. And it says that the bishop can permit women to sing in a choir you know, just made up of only women. But he can permit this only for a grave cause. And as long as you can avoid any risk of disorder... I don't know what they're you know thinking here, whether or not uh, they thought you know women either couldn't behave themselves or you know whether you know because they because I tell you when women sing or green chant when they sing it well, it's a wonderful thing. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. And I don't know maybe maybe the you know men would be jealous or something at how well the women sing. My experience: I had a choir in Rome of only women, and they sang Gregorian chant like angels. And once you hear it, it's really a very lovely thing. But only the bishop back then could permit women to sing, and only for a grave cause. So uh, we might want to go back and you know look at that paragraph another day and think about it. And of course, you know this uh, book talks about the organ, but it also talks about other instruments too. And uh, the editor of the book, you know, who inserts his own comments and little parentheses, little brackets throughout, he inveighs uh, with great, uh, great emotion against things like electric guitars and you know drum sets, and, and he, of course, he does that rightly. But this book, um, Justin, the author, as he wrote it in 1962, talks about the instruments which are permitted. You know, like stringed instruments, and he says violin, viola, and cello, and bass. Yeah, those are fine. And wind instruments, things like the flute, the oboe, the clarinet, the bassoon, and the trumpet. But then he says specifically that the trombone is never to be used. As a matter of fact, he cites a decree, a specific decree, against the use of the trombone in church. It's very interesting, and I'm going to have to find a little more re you know, research on this, because once upon a time, it's interesting that once upon a time, the trombone was considered a sacred instrument, and it wasn't used in secular music. Uh, it's very often uh, attributed to Beethoven, uh, the reintroduction of the trombone into uh, secular music again, because he used it in the final movement, I believe, of his fifth symphony. And it was really you know, kind of cutting edge to do that. The trombone had a sacred uh, idiom when you heard it uh, apparently for a long time and they heard the trombone and it was like you know listening to church just like when you walk into church or any building and you hear a big pipe organ playing you automatically think of church well people thought of the trombone and connected it with sacred things and it was especially used in music that had a, like a funerary uh, connotation uh, think about uh, you know later on uh, the, the Mozart Requiem right in the DA series Tuba mirum spargin sonum, right? That uh, the instrument playing there is the trombone.
this brings us to another point, you know, instruments uh, have connotations. When we hear them, we think of certain things. A saxophone brings us, you know, one kind of thing, electric guitar or a pipe organ. Uh, these things give us a different kind of impression. They have an, a connotation to them. Music does also. Musical styles, musical genres, these all have connotations. And these connotations shift only very slowly. Very, very slowly. And all the music used in our churches should be both sacred and artistic, right? It should be, you know, good music. It should be properly and, and well played, or at least as best we can. But it should also be sacred, not just from the point of view of the texts, but also from the point of view of an idiom. Now, you know, you don't want to you know, probably, you know, go to a Memorial Day parade. Today is Memorial Day in the United States, and God bless those people who, you know, died uh, for the, the sake of their country. But when we go to a Memorial Day parade, we don't necessarily want to have, uh, you know, walking down the street, a group singing, you know, Palestrina. That's not what we're there for. We're there to hear bands play John Philip Sousa. But then again, when we go to church, we don't want to have a jazz band. Okay, now I know that some of you do. Or we don't want to hear John Philip Sousa in church. We don't want to hear certain kinds of music in church. Yeah, I know some of you are going to think, yes, we do. But we really don't, because what we need is a music that has the proper sacred connotation. And while we can't draw concrete uh, lines around what that connotation is and connotation means, nevertheless, the principle is valid. All that we do in church should invoke the transcendent, invoke the sacred. Because it's not so much the horizontal, which uh, we are interested, which is going to get us to heaven, in so, except insofar as it is joined to the transcendent and the vertical. And music is a very, very powerful uh, dimension of the liturgy. It's not just an add-on or an ornament. It is an integrating part, pars integrans. Some people call it an integral part in the liturgy. So we must be very, very careful about the kinds of instruments that we use and the sort of music that are uh, that's being played with them so that they all have a, a good connotation that is beneficial to the people of God as they are in church. Because they know how he plays when someone gives him a beat. He really breaks it up when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. Say a prayer for me in these days. I've got a lot going on. I'm starting to pass.
pack everything up so I can put it in storage for the summer. I'm going to be leaving Rome in one week. One week from today, I'll be on the plane heading back to the United States, where I'll spend the summer, and uh, I'll be at the Sabine Farm. If you ever want to know what that it means, just think of the ancient Roman poet Horace. who used to love to get out of the furious and infuriating city of Rome out to his peaceful country villa in the Sabine Hills called the Sabine Farm uh, down through history. And so I have a lot to do. Lots of people want to see me. And I've got this packing and all this organizing to do and trying to fill up you know, gar at least a big garbage can every day of stuff I don't need. Uh, you know, you got to do that once in a while. But come and see us at the blog, wdtprs.com, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can participate. You can even leave voicemail there now. So far, only one person has done so. I hope you'll uh, leave me some voicemail. I'll uh, try to integrate them into these podcasts if I can. God bless you and yours. We'll see you again soon.